Hello and welcome to this brand new edition to the PropCast. My name is Court and I'm your faithful host and one of the pastors at Providence Community Church. In our last episode, we spent time focusing on the landmark Supreme Court ruling that came down in June, nullifying the infamous Roe v. Wade case from 1973. This issue is important for Christians to consider, and our last episode lasted over an hour. Now, naturally, in my case, of course, despite having over an hour to discuss, I didn't get to cover everything I wanted to cover. So as promised, this episode is part two. There may be part three, part four, who knows. But I'm going to be doing something different, uh, something that I have yet to do on the Profcast to this point. I'm going to be incorporating a soundbite for us to listen to that will frame our discussion in the episode. This two-minute clip, and really a little bit under that, is taken from a Senate hearing last month. In this hearing, senators from both parties were hearing testimony from various experts on the issue of abortion. The particular snippet we're going to hear is a line of questioning from Senator Josh Hawley and Professor Kiara Bridges from Berkeley University. In this clip, Senator Hawley noticed a particular phrase that Professor Bridges had been using in the place of the word woman. And he asks her about that phrase, and then the conversation heats up from there. Let's take a listen. Senator Hawley. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to all of the witnesses for being here. Uh, before, uh, I, I want to visit with you, Ms. Maskey, but before I do, I just want to clear one thing up. Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. It, would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, it's, we can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have attempted suicide. So I think it's important Because of my line of questioning? Because so we can't talk about it? Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist I'm is denying that trans people exist by asking Are you? you if you're talking Are you? about women Are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so you are denying that trans people exist. Thank and that leads to violence. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you? Absolutely. Or are they also treated like this? Where no, you're, no, no. They're, they're, told that to they're at opening up people to oh, violence. We have a good time in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet. You might learn a lot. Well, I, I would learn a lot. I've learned you, a lot I just know. this exchange. Absolutely. Extraordinary. Yep. Now, there's a lot to be said about this exchange between Senator Holly and Professor Bridges. Obviously, it illustrates a a certain level of the political intensity that we've become accustomed to recently, but I think it underscores something else. There seems to be a conscious and aggressive attempt from the halls of academia to undermine fundamental truths that have built the very fabric of the society that we live in today. And I want to focus on one specific area that should perk the ears of every Christian in this clip. The main point of contention here between Holly and Bridges is an obvious and blatant shift in language. And this happens throughout the professor's testimony. Professor Bridges has been testifying in front of the Senate committee uh, all day, and each time she comes to the word woman, she chooses to transpose the word woman 
for the phrase, quote, people with the capacity for pregnancy. And this is a not-so-subtle shift in language, and it, it can't be deemed as anything less than a frontal assault on not just women, but on reality itself. And Holly seems to be asking the professor about this. He asks her some direct questions to get to the heart of this language shift. He asks, is abortion really a women's rights issue anymore? Now, this line of question devolves ultimately until Bridges asks the senator, do you believe that men can get pregnant? And Holly, of course, answers, as every human being would have until maybe five minutes ago or so, no, I do not think that men can get pregnant. Now, this is where it's interesting. The response is quick and vociferous. So you are denying that trans people exist and this is dangerous. Now this response from Holly that most people would have thought as obvious and common for millennia is actually evidence, according to Bridges, that Senator Holly is not merely wrong, he is malicious. And he's not merely malicious, he's encouraging violence through his words. Now, What's obvious at the surface is the anti-logic that Professor Bridges is touting. If something as innocuous as stating a biological reality, like only women can get pregnant, is a form of violence, then what other factual claims about humanity and human existence are impermissible exactly? For instance, if a geneticist were to say only men have a Y chromosome, would they be subject to ridicule or the tribunals? Is stating that only men are in danger of prostate cancer, is that a noble act of medical care, or is it a falsehood on par with Holocaust deniers? Of course, tolerance and care is not the point of this interchange. Obedience is the point. Enforced head nodding, approval of nonsensical statements, that's the point. Convincing the public to agree to absurdity is the point. What we're dealing with today is not the rise of a more inclusive and accepting society, but exactly the opposite. We're facing a highly credentialed and a deeply disturbed regime that is dedicated to raw forms of power and control masked with a smile. The power and control is passive-aggressive in nature, but make no mistake, whether it's passive-aggression or raw aggression, it's still aggression. And all forms of passive aggression that go unchecked tend to devolve into something much worse. But the truth that remains under the surface, which is obvious to anyone who looks for it, is that this line of dialogue in the Senate contains a fact about abortion. It's a fact that's been concealed for decades. Women and the rights of women have been used as the stated reason for abortion access. And it's been this way for years. But really, it's only ever been a vehicle to launder the idea of killing an unborn baby into the minds and hearts of well-meaning people as something that's virtuous. As mentioned in our last episode, safe, legal, and rare was merely the vehicle to get to brave, courageous, and celebrated as soon as possible, and that's where we are today. Now the American psyche has been, now that the American psyche has been fully receptive to tying women's rights to abortion, the vehicle is no longer necessary. The word woman can be abandoned in total because the true design was always to convince an unsuspecting populace that abortion was the moral good because abortion was about protecting women, and after all, what kind of person would not be for protecting women? Now, the line of illogic goes something like this. Abortion is a woman's right. And if you're not for women's rights, then you must be an evil person. Or to put it positively, 
person a person that stands for women's rights is a person that has moral virtue notice the magician keeps your focus on the one hand in order to distract you from what's happening in the other hand husbands and wives you go argue about women's rights as a moral virtue at the dinner table meanwhile we'll be over here redefining abortion as an issue that only affects a woman's body and we will erase the child from the equation entirely of course when the husband and wife look up from dinner in a haze the magician's already done the magic trick already done the replacing now that we must unflinchingly accept the new reality that magic exists the next magic trick begins before you even blink first we've made the child disappear now for our next trick we'll make all women disappear now obviously i'm being coy and and i'm being coy about something that is anything but coy but my point is simple my desire is that all christians would see the issue of abortion and all of the propaganda attached to it for what it actually is it is an affront to human dignity and as history has proven to us over and over again once you accept the degradation of human life in any form it won't be long until every other form must get in line for degradation we must refuse to accept euphemistic and newly invented terms that have no basis in reality if the church does not return to our god-given heritage of truth and the truth in words i'm afraid that we're not going to be able to stop the train that we're on the gospel of john begins in this way in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god few verses this short contain this much power and impact john's words impacted not just the first century but the entire world in one verse the verse is so chalked full of meaning it would be foolish of me to think that we could mine all of it today but i want to have a go at trying to scratch the surface the new testament being written in greek carries with it the obligation that we consider the meaning of translation translating words is a risky business and that's because not all words have a one-to-one -one correlation across all the various languages of man the translators of the new testament from greek to english chose to translate the word the greek word logos to the english word word and the capital the capitalization of the spelling of the word word in our english translations of the bible should give us some indication that there's much more beneath the surface than the translation allows in the beginning god was not a word john tells us that in the beginning there was the word and that word was god now the logos was a greek concept that had come down through history from the early philosophers like plato aristotle all the way to the days of jesus and the disciples the Logos was to the Greeks the God behind the chaos of the universe. The Logos was the God who brought unity to the diverse chaos of the world. This may seem like an odd choice for the translators to use, to use the word word to describe the Greek word Logos, but it is the precise choice that we would expect if we consider it further. To the Greeks, words represented the manner of logic and reason with which human beings make sense of reality man without words is like a symphony without music or a forest with no trees it was simply nonsensical more profoundly plato recognized that the logos must exist as the word behind the words without a divine word that exists to give absolute reality and substance to the words of mankind even man with all of his words will ultimately be meaningless so for john to write these things in the first century we must understand his intent it's very clear 
John intends for the reader to draw a straight line from the Logos of the Greeks to the God of the Hebrew Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and John chapter 1 verse 1 start astonishingly similar. And he does all of this to set up his claim that is coming in verse number 14 in his opening chapter where John states, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Logos, the divine word that exists behind the words, manifested in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, why is all of this pertinent to our conversation about the Senate hearings on Capitol Hill? If John is intent on convincing us that Jesus Christ is the Logos of the Greeks and that he preexisted all of creation itself, at least two things must follow from that. Number one, the word, capital W, provides the only reality and substance through which we can understand our existence. Number two, truth, therefore, capital T, is that which corresponds to the Logos, which preexisted creation and upon which all reality is built. Now, in other words, reality itself is God's reality because God is ultimate reality. Thus, there is no truth apart from God himself, and anyone who desires to seek out the truth has to begin with God, and John tells us, in turn, must begin with Jesus Christ. Now to my main point. Doesn't this give real gravity to the words, lowercase w, that we use on a daily basis? Like when Jesus says things in the Gospels, like, for every idle word spoken by man, he will give an account. Shouldn't that make us tremble in our boots? Like when we re-listen to the conversation in the Senate about abortion and the constant use of, quote, the words, people with the capacity of pregnancy. We should move from being annoyed to being astonished. What exactly is meant by people with the capacity for pregnancy? What exactly is meant by using words like cis women? What should we conclude from the decision to erase the word woman from our common vernacular? Why is it that it seems to me that every seat of power in every influential corridor of our society is bent on teaching us a brand new lexicon of words, and we must use these words as replacements for describing people and things that we had perfectly suitable words to use already for a long time? More importantly, we should ask ourselves, why does this lexicon keep growing by the day? so quickly, in fact, that even vehement loyalists to the cause can't even keep up with it. Here lies the root issue. The true Logos, being the only standard by which words have meaning at all, carries with him authority, divine authority. He is, after all, the warrior king of Revelation, with a double-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. When he speaks, the nations tremble. And they tremble because the, when the true Logos speaks, reality itself must bend to his will. And this is why our forefathers of the faith put such a high premium on the sanctity of God's decree and God's word. Like, for instance, what's the biblical rule for judging a prophet in the Old Testament? If someone says, thus saith the Lord, how do we judge that man? Well, Deuteronomy tells us, if the man's words do not come to pass, he is a false prophet and a liar. And the Old Testament law demanded capital punishment for a man like this. Why? Well, anyone presuming to speak for the Logos is meddling in the deepest waters imaginable. The Logos speaks with the authority that only he possesses. Once he has spoken, his word has the power to create and to subdue. 
to bring to life and to kill. Our very existence is contingent upon the words of the Logos. And so if he has said, if he has delegated the authority to a man to say, thus saith the Lord, and it does not come to pass, how serious is that lie? It's as serious as life and death. This explains why Jesus was able to heal, cast out demons, even raise the dead with simply a word. The Roman soldier who begged Jesus to heal his servant understood this even greater than Jesus' disciples of the day. When he approached Jesus to request healing for his daughter, he said, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowds that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. You see, the soldier understood the word made flesh. If Jesus were to merely speak, it would be so, and he understood this. He needed no pretense. And if the divine Logos has this kind of authority, then all the other words in every language under heaven only have real meaning and substance when they correspond in subjection to the word, to the Christ. To unravel and undermine the meaning of words, lowercase w, is to an attempt, an assault on the Logos. To fabricate words in an attempt to deceive rather than to reveal the truth is a sin more grave than we could ever imagine. An attempt to upend the king is futile, we know this, but the destruction caused by futile efforts of this kind are no less devastating. Remember, Satan himself sought to assault the Logos. He even convinced our first parents to join his rebellion. And even though his attempt was an abject failure, the results have been nothing short of supreme devastation. The spiritual battle behind the cultural and political battles of our time have everything to do with words. The old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words could never hurt me, that does not apply to the discussion we're having. Lying words have hurt more people than sticks and stones could ever dream of. Lying words are murderous words because they originate from their father. He is the father of lies and is a murderer from the beginning, Jesus tells us. It's not coincidental, then, that the lying words of our culture were brought to the fore in a public hearing on the topic of abortion, since lives are at stake. No, friends, we should expect nothing different. I implore you to consider the changing of our common vernacular, our common dictionary, as something much more than a sideshow issue that's playing out in the halls of academia. It's so much more than that. The recreating of our dictionary is an essential cog in the wheels that are seeking to destroy. They are motivated by the father of lies. In the last episode, we talked about common phrases that are used to describe abortion. Phrases like, abortion as a woman's right to choose. Or, abortion is the emancipation of women. Or, abortion is the right to to women's bodily autonomy. Or, abortion is the, the rights of Uh, women's reproductive health care. Now, all of these words have been used for decades not to clarify the truth about abortion by seeking to align the lowercase w words with the capital W divine word. Oh no, 
On the contrary, these words were meticulously designed to obscure reality and to create a mirage to confuse the hearer. By refusing to use clear words and phrases like the killing of unborn human life, the aim has been to obfuscate reality in the hopes of reframing the death of one life for the, emancipa the emancipation and freedom of another. Like a skilled magician, the sleight of hand is subtle but effective. If a person objects to the snuffing out of a human life in a womb, one must only turn the argument on its head with a fresh vernacular. Why on earth would you oppose women's reproductive health care? You must hate women. Well, any well-meaning person is caught off guard by this attack. Immediately, well-meaning people being introspective, they repulse. Of course not. I don't want women to be denied health care. I care about women. Lost on most of us is the abuse and manipulation of words, which for the Christian must be seen for nothing less than an assault on truth. And in any assault on truth is an assault, in turn, on God himself. In summation, the words that were chosen by Professor Bridges in this hearing were calculated. You can notice in the hearings that Professor Bridges is unwilling to move even an inch from her newly concocted vernacular. Even when she is pressed to the bitter edge to utter the word woman, she avidly avoids doing so. And it's easy for us to laugh at their newfound phrases, but Professor Bridges exhibits far more understanding than many Christians in regards to this fight. She understands the battle of words. And whether she understands the spiritual battle that's happening beyond the five senses or not, she certainly wields the weapons of warfare with precision. Christians must recover the wisdom of God in the scriptures. To be bullied or forced into using words that have no meaning, or words that have a newly minted meaning, that are designed to confuse, this is not merely an exercise of tolerance, an exercise of acceptance or kindness. No, it is an exercise of surrendering truth in its most raw form by adopting language that necessarily erodes our ability to know and to honor God. To know and honor God as he's revealed himself to us in scripture, and to know and honor God as he has most clearly revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In turn, it greatly hinders us in our efforts to make sense of the world around us. It makes us vulnerable to accepting and even defending in ourselves and others sinful and atrocious acts of rebellion against God that we never would have even considered apart from the words. It happens through the hijacking of sacred words, words like love, words like acceptance, words like kindness, words we all aspire to. But let me ask, who decides what is loving, accepting, or kind but the God who made us, made us from his love, made us from his great kindness, his great grace, accepted us into his family? And if we call something loving that God has deemed unloving, should we then make ourselves enemies of the God who created us? Who is it that dare presumes to teach the Christ who bled and died for us on the cross what true love looks like? This is of supreme importance for Christians most of all. We are people of the word. The gospel we preach is a gospel of words. And if words cease to have meaning and they are continually undermined by those in power, what does that mean for the preaching of the gospel? If the church willingly turns in her sword and exchanges it for a noodle, what business does she have complaining when the town burns down when the marauders come over the fence? 
Jesus taught his disciples that they should judge a tree by its fruit. And if the same tree that promised to protect the rights of women now dares not even utter the word woman at all, perhaps the good of women hasn't been the point all along. Maybe the apples being sold to us at the local market as, quote, organic are really just painted over rotten garbage. How long will we go on eating rotten fruit before we decide that the farmer selling us the groceries might be telling us a lie? And how long until we decide to share that secret with our neighbors? That, hey, these people are charlatans and they aren't actually interested in our health after all. Finally, maybe we need to sharpen our spiritual axes and spend some time in the field laying waste to these rotten trees so we can get to the kingdom business of planting real orchards again. It's important for us to end with two major questions. Number one, why are we susceptible to this? And what? number two, what should we do about it? The shortest and mo most accurate answer to the first question is predictable. Sin. We sin because we're sinners, and sin has a way of convincing us of lies, which then perpetuates more lies. But let's try to dig deeper than that. What kind of sin? What types of sin make us prone to going along with this kind of thing? Well, at the top of the list must be the sin of pride. Pride in the human heart makes man unquestionably averse to authority, and in particular, God's authority. Anytime we're faced with an option to redefine words, to suit our own personal proclivities, we're game to do so, because we fancy being kings and queens of our own moral universe. Also, our pride has a way of affirming all our desires as supreme. So anything that serves to suit our desires, well, that thing will do just fine. A close second is shame. Now, shame is not necessarily sinful, but it is the result of sin. And the response to shame can only lead us in one of two directions. First, it can lead us to confession, repentance, forgiveness, and communion with God through Christ. Or two, it can lead us to more sin, to mask the shame, hide the shame, or maybe redefine the shame to artificially clear our conscience. Shame can either be a gift from God to bring us back to his feet in contrition, or it can be a powerful force to harden our resolve against God and chart our own path all over again. The bronze medal probably belongs to cowardice. At the end of the day, most people like to be liked. Most people want to be wanted. And some people need to be needed. And that overriding desire for approval can shrink the bravest man's chest back down to junior high levels. It takes significant courage and willingness to be mistreated to be the only person in the room to depart from the herd. In recent days, it's even meant potential persecution, such as losing your job or your position if you dare step outside of the approved narrative. A universal trait that we see among the faithful in Hebrews 11 is courage. And in the times that we now live, we would do well to remind one another of that fact. Perhaps faithfulness and courage go hand in hand. Finally, one dishonorable mention, apathy. Sadly, otherwise well-meaning people usually just don't care what is happening around them until it starts to affect them severely. And by then, it's usually too late. The children of Israel are a great biblical example of this. After being set free from Egyptian bondage and provided with a land flowing with milk and honey, the Israelites quickly stopped caring too deeply about things like idolatry. Their newfound liberty provided an abundance of blessing, and they were too busy enjoying it to even consider the potential threats that might destroy it. Sure, they knew that the tribe of Benjamin was permitting some sexually violent and evil behavior, but hey, that was way on the outskirts. Let the Benjamites do what they want. Who are we to judge? Of course, 
This did lead to the slaughter of thousands of Israelites when sword turned brother against brother in a civil war at the end of the book of Judges. The tragic fact is that most people, Christians included, tend to make the false correlation between being too small to make much of a difference and being so small that no action matters. This is a common mistake. It's true that most people are not in prominent positions to make wholesale change. It's not true, however, that God deems our lack of social notoriety as an excused absence from the roll call of the kingdom. We have to show up. We have to show up every day in small and not so small ways. We have to stand for the truth in humility and courage, trusting that God is going to sort out all the details. And anything less than this is not merely a nuanced matter of conscience, it's an unbiblical act of disobedience. So what should we take away from this? Well, in the same order, let's start with humility. We must submit ourselves to, to the living word, Jesus Christ, and in so doing, to the written word of God in Scripture. We must start taking the Bible at face value again and stop making loophole excuses on why you and I are permitted to be the exception to every rule. We got to check our desires at the door with our scripture in hand, call sin what it is in our own lives first, and then be willing to speak that same truth and love to others when the situation divinely arises. Second, we must address our shame for our own sin in the manner that God has provided for us in the gospel. We must confess our sin one to another and be healed from it, as the book of James tells us. We must repent of our sin and receive the free, the free grace and forgiveness that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. And then we must dispense that self-same grace that was lavished on us to any and everyone who truly confesses and repents and trusts Christ. The self-same grace that washes over me like a tide and clears my conscience must be dispensed to every sinner who repents. And yes, that even includes the most vehement pro-abortion lobbyist in the United States of America. As an aside, I do not know Professor Bridges. I do not know her standing in the faith or what she thinks of Christ. But it is my sincere prayer that she know Jesus, repent of her sin, trust in Christ wholeheartedly for salvation, and be forever healed and forgiven in his name. And nothing less than this must be our sincere desire and hope for every person who crosses our path, yes, even our enemies. Third, we must take a double shot of Christian courage and consider getting a booster every Sunday in worship with the saints. We need to start avoiding cowardice as something more dangerous than COVID and more contagious to boot. Before we start masking up our cowardly friends, though, we need to get a test kit and see if maybe we need to quarantine for a bit in prayer and confession. Okay, aside from the COVID references, that's enough, but courage is actually something a lot more akin to a muscle that you exercise than a natural state of being that you enjoy. There are no shortcuts to, be, to building courage muscles. It's everyday exercise and continual recovery at the feet of Jesus and among the fellow saints. Finally, Friends, we must decide to start caring more. Now, I am not advocating that all of our members at Providence or anybody listening to this as, as a Christian start a Facebook group to wage war on all the bots and trolls of social media in the name of Jesus. I'm not counseling listeners to decide to lose your job tomorrow by standing on the lunch table and denouncing all woke ideology as satanic. No, I am advocating for something far more difficult and subversive than that we need to start being ambassadors for the kingdom of God every day. In the morning, we need to wake up and we need to put on the whole armor of God and expect that we might just get shot at today. We need to dust off our shield of faith and start believing God's promises again, namely the promises that are so outlandish that they're difficult to believe. 
like the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the advancing kingdom of our Christ. We need to start incrementally growing in prayer, waging war against the dark and demonic forces that seek nothing less than our destruction at any cost. We need to start praying for our children daily and training them that they might see the greatest rev revival the world has ever seen in their day and be ready for it. We need to read the Bible daily and seek to apply it to our lives. We need to believe that the Bible's true, pray like it's true, share it with our neighbor like it's true. And we need to stop being so ashamed of our holy and sacred heritage that we have in Christ. That we dare not whisper it in the line at Starbucks, much less bring it up at the school board meeting or at dinner with the in-laws. We need to start caring about the state of our towns, our cities, our states. Caring about the decisions that are being made by those in power because after all, it will have an effect on our posterity that we're responsible for. And we need to care about these things at least as much as we care about sports, as we care about careers, as we care about house projects at home, vacations, and yes, even your child's future place at an Ivy League academy. After all, if you don't start caring about it, you may be sending Junior over to Berkeley one day, and apart from the grace of God, no amount of proud Facebook posts or all the likes you're going to get will keep him from learning to hate the very God that you raised him to serve. I'm saying all this to say we have to become unashamedly Christian. People of the word, devoted to his name, eternally minded, filled with grace, filled with hope, filled with joy, and headed for glory. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Provcast. If you want more information about Providence, you can check us out at ProvidenceTX.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And if you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning, we have gatherings at 9 a.m. and 1045 every single Sunday. Until next time, go share the love of God that's been shown to you. Blessings. Blessings.